This is Speaking of the Economy, a podcast hosted by the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. In each episode, we'll hear firsthand from the Richmond Fed's economists and other experts about the issues they're exploring, from access to credit, to workforce development, to regional differences in economic outcomes. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond or the Federal Reserve System. I'm Charles Jarina, online editor for the Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. Thank you for listening to Speaking of the Economy. You can find past episodes on the Richmond Fed's website or Apple Podcasts. The federal government has spent millions of dollars in financial aid during the COVID-19 pandemic, which has killed more than 700,000 Americans as of early November. State and local governments have benefited from some of this support. Today, we're talking with two people at the Richmond Fed who have looked at the direct and indirect effects of federal aid to states during the pandemic. Laura Ulrich is a regional economist at the Richmond Fed's Charlotte branch. Sam Lewis Taylor is a public policy analyst based in our Richmond office. Both recently contributed posts for our Regional Matters blog on this topic in September and June of this year. Thanks for joining us, Laura and Sam. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Let's start by rewinding the clock to before the pandemic reached our shores. Uh, Laura, how were state governments doing in terms of revenues and spending, especially those in the Fifth Federal Reserve District that we follow the most closely? Yeah, great question, Charles. Just to level set federal government, revenue collections often are less than the spending that the federal government does. But state governments actually don't operate in the same way. And in fact, most state governments have what are called balanced budget requirements. So what does this look like in the 5th District? It differs um, depending on what state you're in. In Maryland, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Washington, D.C., the rules say that the governor has to submit a balanced budget for the year and then the legislature has to pass a balanced budget. In West Virginia, the legislature has to pass a balanced budget, but the governor's initial budget is not required to be balanced. However, when the governor signs the budget into law, it has to be balanced at that point. Virginia is actually a little bit different. So in Virginia, it's not required for the budget submitted by the governor or passed by the legislature to be balanced, but there is a balanced budget requirement when it comes to execution. So the governor must ensure that actual expenditures do not exceed actual revenues. So that is how state governments have to operate. And because of that, it is typical when there's an economic downturn to see state governments have to cut budgets. They're not able to run deficits. Pre-COVID, we were in the longest expansionary period in modern economic history in the U.S. So it had been a long period of time since the last recession, which is oftentimes called the Great Recession because we had seen a lot of growth, especially in the geography that we cover in the 5th District. All 5th District states had budget surpluses in 2019. And pre-COVID, there were active discussions going on in the states about what to do with these excess funds. There's a lot of pressure on the state government to cut taxes, right, to cut the revenue side. There were other recommendations, though, across the district. So, for example, in Virginia, there were recommendations that the governor had stated maybe they would start doing a low-income tax credit, um, similar to the earned income tax credit at the federal level. And in North Carolina, they were talking about giving educators bonuses. While the surplus discussions were kind of actively going on, COVID hit, and people were afraid that we wouldn't be able to meet budget, that revenues would be cut. Before that time, all of these surplus funds were being funneled into what are called rainy day funds at the state level. And the rainy day funds are 
to help states in the event of a budget shortfall. So the good news going into COVID was that because we had had budget surpluses, the states in the fifth districts did have relatively healthy rainy day funds, which helped in the very early days of the pandemic. And so because of that, they were far less likely to cut spending early on in the pandemic than what we saw right when the Great Recession happened. Thanks for that context. Uh, What's your take, Sam? Laura makes a lot of great points because of those surpluses. Those reserve accounts were already really prepared for kind of a worst case scenario to help stave off some of the worst cuts that could have happened. Before the pandemic, many states were still working to bring those spending levels uh, of their budget back to where they were even before uh, the financial crisis occurred more than 10 years ago. Across the district, we were seeing state economies mirror the overall growth of the national economy. If you believe that bond ratings are a good indication of financial health, then our states in the 5th District are generally seen as being some of the most fiscally prudent states in the country. You have North Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland, whose bonds are all rated at AAA, and that's AAA across the board. South Carolina is a mix of AA plus and AAA, and then West Virginia is kind of a mix of AA and AA minus. Uh, Sam, what happened to their income and sales tax revenues when the pandemic struck? I think with this question, it's worth discussing both the projections for what was going to happen and then the reality of what states actually had to deal with. As with all of us, uh, the beginning of the pandemic brought a lot of uncertainty for states' fiscal picture. As things started to shut down at the beginning, particularly for some of our tourism-dependent states here on the coast, uh, states were projecting some pretty dramatic drops in revenues for 2020, 2021, even out to 2022. For example, West Virginia was projecting a 10% shortfall in revenue collection through 2021. Virginia had projected a 7% shortfall. North Carolina, a 7% shortfall as well in 2020, and then an additional 10% shortfall in 2021. And then South Carolina uh, projecting just an 8% drop, still significant through 2021. A lot of our states within the district made very conservative and very prudent decisions to simply freeze spending across much of the government as the pandemic was unrolling across the country to make sure that they could adequately respond to the health crisis. It's important to remember that it's not like we have a lot of recent experience creating financial models or, or even domestic response models for a global pandemic. Uh, It's basically been a century since our states and our governors have had to deal with an outbreak at this level. So many state budget officers were in a position to really plan for the worst and then hope for the best. Fortunately, in terms of the fiscal impact, we didn't really hit that worst case scenario in a lot of cases. Fortunately, states did have historic levels of reserves to fall back on. And so they didn't end up having to cut quite as much as they Uh, were projecting if they had to cut at all. Many states saw very surprising levels of revenue collection uh, and were able to avoid those cuts. Uh, Some of this can be attributed to the quick recovery in consumer spending um, that we've seen throughout the economy as many sectors started to reopen in 2020 heading into 2021. Uh, Just as, as an example of kind of the surpluses we're talking about, um, West Virginia ended their fiscal year 2020 with a surplus of $243.9 million, 
and they ended fiscal year 21 with a surplus of 450 million. And then the state going into the current year has continued to see really high revenue collection. Uh, Virginia ended the fiscal year 21 with a record surplus of $2.6 billion. That's billion with a B. That sounds like a very dramatic shift. Um, Laura, what have you seen? Sam's right that when COVID first hit, we were hearing from really all the states across the district that they were fearing declines in state and local tax revenues. That's normally what happens. You have a contraction or you go into a recession and state and local tax revenues are hit. There is typically a bit of a lag in that decline in state and local tax revenues, but we do see it happen. And in the past two recessions, tax revenues fell notably, and it took a long time for them to recover. So, for example, in the Great Recession, so the Great Recession was from 2007 to 2009, total state and local tax revenues on an annualized basis decreased from a high of $1.37 trillion in the second quarter of 2008 to $1.25 trillion a year later. It took until the fourth quarter of 2011 for state and local tax revenues to recover. This time, it was just very, very different. When everything shut down in 2020, people went home. It's not surprising that state and local tax revenues began to fall. People were spending less money, so sales tax revenues went down. People were making less money, so income tax revenues fell. During the second quarter of 2020, states saw both income and sales taxes, which are the two biggest tax uh, revenue categories for states, take a significant hit. And this was in line with what we expected. However, state and local tax revenues really quickly rebounded in the third quarter to record high levels. Much of that has to do with the fiscal support that came from the CARES Act. And the support from the CARES Act, you know, it was support to people, support to businesses, support to both state and local governments. That propped up sales tax revenue as well as income tax revenue for the rest of 2020. You know, I'll add in here, there have been a lot of comparisons between the Great Recession and the the fiscal aftermath that we've seen over the last year. I'm actually not sure that that comparison is always useful. One, we're talking about a major financial and housing crisis that really dealt with deep-seated problems in the economy. What we've had now is a healthcare crisis laid on top of what was otherwise a, a relatively healthy economic picture. But, you know, I do think it's probably worth discussing the difference between the austerity measures we saw in 2008 and how that compares to the response to the pandemic. Since most states and local government draw the bulk of their revenue from taxes, income, sales taxes, personal property taxes, the public sector was really hit hard in the Great Recession. Most states had to shrink their budgets to varying degrees. In 2008, the federal government, through some of their recovery plans, did send some money to state and local governments, but it's largely been seen, in hindsight, as being too small to deal with that crisis. By all accounts, it's kind of clear that the austerity of the Great Recession led to slower-than-possible economic recovery in a lot of areas of the country. This time, states and local governments have been relatively flush with federal dollars. In many cases, they were able to just pause a lot of spending programs. Uh, Lawrence, Sam, tell me more about the CARES Act. Uh, Many people have called it a quote-unquote stimulus bill. I mean, even though it wasn't intended to be an emergency aid pack. Yeah, I think it's important to remember when the CARES Act was passed. Um, The CARES Act was passed on March 30th of 2020. So it was passed really quickly as we entered the most uh, severe part of the pandemic. 
part of the CARES Act was direct relief to state and local governments. It was $150 billion. Policymakers expected state and local governments to experience significant revenue shortfalls. We had seen what that did to government agencies in the Great Recession, and they lobbied hard to make that a part of the CARES Act. Uh, Most of the money was distributed to states based on population, but there was a stipulation within the CARES Act that no state would get less than $1.25 billion. And so these dollars were pretty limited in terms of what they could be spent on. That money had to be spent on anything that met the three following criteria. It had to be spending that was incurred because of COVID-19. It had to be spending that was not accounted for in the budget passed prior to COVID-19. So something that came up during COVID that you, you wouldn't have expected otherwise. And then it had to be expenditures incurred between March 1st, 2020 and December 30th, 2020. A perfect example was additional PPE that you would have to buy to protect your workforce or maybe testing supplies, cleaning supplies, things like that. State governments also benefited pretty significantly in indirect ways from other funds provided by the CARES Act. There was support to individuals. There were stimulus payments that were made. There was also enhanced and expanded unemployment insurance. And then also companies got significant aid via the PPP or the payroll protection program loans. So that relief alongside the recovery that was happening led to increased personal income in the third quarter of 2020. So normally during a recession, we would expect to see personal income fall significantly. So that increase in personal income brought record high state and local income tax revenue collections by the third quarter of 2020. And data suggests that states ended 2020 with an overall decline in revenue of only about 0.2%. And nearly half of the states in the United States, including North Carolina and Virginia, actually saw revenue increase overall in 2020 compared to 2019. So it was a much different 2020 by December than what people thought it might be when the CARES Act was passed March 30th. For a healthcare pandemic, I don't know that the concept of a stimulus bill and an emergency aid bill are necessarily mutually exclusive. And it's also important to remember that the CARES Act was the third pandemic response bill passed between the beginning of February and the end of March 2020. What we did see from the CARES Act is that a lot of states were using those funds uh, not just respond to the pandemic, but eventually to help their states reopen. So in a lot of ways, CARES Act actually supported some of that resurgence and consumer demand as more businesses and schools and communities were able to open back up. Interesting. Um, We've talked a lot about what happened to state revenues during the COVID-19 pandemic. What about the spending side of the budget? You might initially think, oh, well, obviously, state and local governments had to spend more during the pandemic. They had to buy all this extra cleaning supplies. They had to test people. They had to pay for health care, maybe in different ways. There were increased expenditures that states faced. And no doubt, one of those categories was higher public health expenditures frontline workers, the people that were having to go into work, these essential workers that we often heard about, many of them were getting paid overtime or or hazard pay for that. Also, Medicaid expenditures increased because enrollment grew by 11.7% between February and November 2020. You also had higher education expenditures when everybody had to go home to start doing um, education from their house local school districts to big state universities that were having to provide additional technology to students, faculty, staff. Um, They were providing supplemental nutrition to students at home. At the same time, those states did see a decline in other expenditures. 
state and local employment fell at the beginning of the pandemic, and it still hasn't recovered. In the case of state and local government, you know, salaries are a huge part of their budgets. It wasn't that states were laying people off or firing people. In many cases, states instituted hiring freezes right away because of these fears of declining state tax revenues and local tax revenues. As people left jobs, they just didn't fill them. Also, think about public transportation, the buses and the light rail and and the public transportation systems were shut down for a period of time. And so that saved them money in terms of gas and maintenance. So if you look at the overall impact on net, state expenditures actually were relatively flat through 2020. How did fiscal support from the CARES Act factor into spending? When you talk about the spending side of this equation, it's important to remember that the CARES Act was not just a blank check for states to do anything they wanted to with it. The money was given for a very specific purpose, which was to help states respond to the pandemic and to deal with the fallout to their education systems, their transportation systems, and really their economies more generally those funds could not be used to backfill revenue shortages. Even with those limitations, states did have some leeway in how they could spend the money. Uh, Many states use those funds to invest in uh, improved broadband access, something that became really critical to families who needed access to remote schooling. That's just as true in the middle of a urban area like Charlotte or Charleston or Richmond as it is in rural areas of Appalachia or Eastern North Carolina. In addition to that, other states provided low-cost loans to small businesses in really hard-hit sectors, like tourism and the restaurant industry. Most states used these funds to bulk up supplies of PPE and eventually to build up the response infrastructure needed to distribute vaccines. As vaccination rates have continued to rise over the last year, that's pretty directly correlated with um, increased economic activity around the country. Given where states were fiscally at the end of 2020, then you had the American Rescue Plan Act come into play. So how did that factor into the state's budgets? The state's tax revenues recovered much faster than people initially thought. The states actually appeared to be in a pretty decent place fiscally. But the federal government still included $350 billion in additional release for state and local governments in the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, as I'll call it, which was signed into law March 2021. I think this is pretty staggering, but according to the Tax Foundation, the aggregated state aid that states got from ARPA is 116 times larger than the revenue losses that they had from the pandemic. ARPA funds represent a tremendous influx of dollars into the district states and local government. It's hard to overstate how significant these funds are. For example, in Virginia, they had a record budget surplus of $2.6 billion in 2021 fiscal year. In addition to that surplus, the state received $4.3 billion in ARPA funds. And local governments in Virginia got $2.9 billion in ARPA funds. Going back to your question about how this impacts budgeting, it is really important to note a few things about the ARPA funds. The ARPA funds are broader in terms of what they can be spent on. However, they're not recurring. So this is a one-time influx of funds that must be spent by 2024. Because these funds aren't recurring, states will be unlikely to consider the funds much when actually setting a budget, right? You don't want to set up a a program in 2022 that's going to require funds each year that would rely on these one-time funds. 
Instead, the funds will be more likely to be spent on one-time capital projects, on deferred maintenance, which is a major issue across states, and or other projects that won't require recurring funds beyond 2024. However, states also are going to have budget surpluses again this year. And so we're going to likely continue to hear about what should be done with those funds, right? And states are going to continue to face pressure to cut taxes or to adjust their spending programs to account for these surplus funds. I'm not sure if it would be fun or terribly challenging to be you know, in charge of spending decisions and budget decisions at, at the state level right now. You all of a sudden have a massive amount of surplus money and federal money coming in that policymakers and citizens have a lot of uh, leeway to figure out what to do with. At the same time, you've also got increased uh, and competing political demands on those funds. It's quite a balancing act that a lot of these uh, legislators are going to have to figure out over the next couple of years. When comparing that to the CARES Act, a response to the immediate crisis, ARPA in a lot of ways is slightly more future looking. It's intended to build a ramp towards economic growth in the sort of the short term to medium term. And a lot of governments and localities are looking at this as an opportunity to invest in some really future looking needs for their states, which could be, you know, helping tourism dependent areas of their states recover and set them up for economic growth in the near future. It could be modernizing cybersecurity infrastructure. It could be helping students catch up uh, from learning loss from having to be remote. We've already seen that states have been using these funds to give uh, hazard and special pay to healthcare workers. There's still a major health crisis uh, that, that we're experiencing on a daily basis. States are also using those funds to build up a lot of the basic public health infrastructure that has been really strained by the pandemic. And they're continuing to use it to support immunization drives so that the economy and you know, a lot of sectors can continue to operate and, and start to operate more openly if they're not doing so already. So uh, what have you seen the state governments in the 5th District doing with some of this ARPA money? So within the 5th District, we've seen most states use ARPA funds to bolster their unemployment insurance systems that in many cases have been really underinvested in since the end of the 2008 financial crisis and the Great Recession a decade ago. Those systems have faced substantial strain and stress during, with, with the onslaught of unemployment claims during the last 18 months. You know, you can pick up any newspaper and, and probably still read about some delays that people have experienced getting uh, unemployment claims. We've also seen states like Maryland and Virginia make uh, historic allocations into expanding broadband access and are making promises to effectively end the digital divide. North Carolina has created some special grant programs for the hospitality and tourism industry. I'm hoping to help those businesses recover and bridge some of the uh, still persistent uncertainty around COVID uh, and travel hesitancy that we're likely to see for some time to come. Deciding how to spend this money is very difficult for these agencies, um, and that's true at state and local levels. They're not used to having this kind of opportunity, right? I read about a school district, I believe in Wisconsin, that spent a good bit of their money on building turf football fields. This provides states the opportunity to do some things they've wanted to do for a really long time. If this money allows states to do some things like that, it's going to be an amazing opportunity. 
there's going to be, you know, controversial decisions that have to be made and really, you know, some good discussions, I think, across our states in, in terms of the best ways in which to spend this money to get the type of economic and personal benefit that we want people to, to get. You bring up a really good point about the challenges that states are going to face as they're deciding what to do with these billions of dollars of funds that are non-recurring. And you point out some opportunities there, um, but also some interesting decision points. Lauren, Sam, thank you for doing a deep dive for us into this topic. Thanks for having us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Speaking of the Economy is produced by the Research Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond. You can subscribe to the podcast on the Apple Podcasts app or download past episodes from our website at richmondfed.org slash speakingoftheeconomy. Want to know more about the issues that the Richmond Fed has been exploring? Check out our Regional Focus, a series of curated web pages that showcase economic research and data, reports and essays, and community engagement endeavors relevant to 5th District communities. Just look for the links on the homepage at richmondfed.org. The intro music for this podcast was composed by Ernest Barbaric, and the sound effect used in the intro was produced by Keith Holzman. The outro music was by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening.